to Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Hunter, for coming on Black White Mass Incarceration Show. Just explain to the audience about how public defenders work. And so I will let you introduce yourself and um, tell them about your amazing podcast that you have and a little a bit about what you do and why you decided to start a podcast about public defenders. Of course, of course. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. So my name is Hunter Parnell. I am the host of a podcast called Public Defenseless. And I'm not an attorney myself. Um, I will be going to law school in the fall, so hopefully that'll change in the next couple of years. But I wanted to start doing this um, for kind of a three-factored reason. My big old Hispanic family lives out in the state of Colorado, where I currently am. And in my family, the majority of the men in my family have had some interaction with the criminal legal system, whether it be through minor infractions, major infractions, whether it's at the municipal, state, or federal level. I've got a cousin and uncle who went through it. And I saw it firsthand the way that Colorado, which is by no means a bad state when it comes to criminal legal issues, it is one of the better ones in the country, but even one of the better ones in the country fundamentally fails to understand how to deal with people with addiction, with trauma, with real underlying issues that need to be addressed. So I knew I was going to be a part in trying to help change the system. I originally thought that I was going to do medicine, but uh, a little bit harder. Uh, (laughs) Math a little bit hard. So I decided to go start studying legal studies where I went to college at the Air Force Academy. And while I was there, very fortunate to have some professors that, and very fortunate to work with Sixth and Eighth Amendment case law material, learn about what I think is an underappreciated part of the legal system. And then fast forward, took that information and fast forward when George Floyd was killed, I was stationed over in the United Kingdom and in the Air Force. And I was like, I really want to do something. I really want to help. I don't know how. Um, And originally I was like, I'm going to write a 550 page book of every state's indigent defense system. And publishers routinely reminded me that that is longer than the Lord of the Rings um, and that I am not uh, as somebody who can just do that and get expect that to get published. Everyone was like, you need to cut it by like 350 pages. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't think I can do that. So that didn't go anywhere. Yeah, that didn't go anywhere. But I was able to make a lot of great connections through that, um, especially with David Carroll of the Sixth Amendment Center. And we got to talking, got to figuring out a better way to get the information out. And that's how the podcast was, was bore out with the goal of really letting people know how the indigent defense system works, because there is such a call for change, but our legal system is intentionally so cumbersome, so difficult to penetrate for the layperson who is trying to, you know, feed their kids, get a job, you know, just live life. It is so difficult to understand what's going on in the legal system that I felt it was my obligation to provide to people like my family what exactly was going on with the indigent defense system and other criminal justice reforms, why they aren't working, why they can work, and, and what we need to do to get them to work. And see, that's that's amazing. That's kind of why I jumped in. Well, I jumped in because um, I had reconnected with my husband and found, you know, that he had some issues, a lot of issues in his case. And so I jumped in, like, not knowing anything, because I came from being a receptionist at a physical therapy office to jumping into criminal justice. And so I didn't know how bad and corrupt, like, it was until 
I actually started getting into it. And so I basically taught myself legal stuff going through his discovery and just doing a lot of research. And then I decided to go to school for paralegal. And so he's talking, he's talking to me and going for a lawyer, but I'm like, "Mm, I'm already 36. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you know, it just seems like it it needs, there needs to be a better model of attorneys and public defenders to represent our people who understand that these the people that are coming through the system are coming from a traumatized generation, whether it's generational trauma, whether it's trauma from family or whatever kind of trauma that you experienced. You can have trauma any time of your life. It's not just when you're younger. It can be at any time of your life. And so understanding that nobody just wakes up and wants to commit a crime. I mean, yeah, you have people that who just are chemically imbalanced and just can't make those conscious decisions to where they're not harming somebody. And I feel like those people can't be around society, but I don't feel like it should be in a prison. And so I feel like it should be somewhere where they're getting real mental health because I still don't think that America has a good grasp on mental health as well. And I feel like that's- No, not at all. Yeah, a lot of people are suffering. And so just trying to understand that you have to advocate like, when you're a public defender, when you're any attorney, especially on the defense side, you have to understand that this is this person's life. Like, this is not just a case, but this is a person's life that you are representing to make sure that the state is not sucking them in the system. And so, you know, I understand that public defenders are underpaid. I do, because of course they're funded by the state and we know the state will probably give less to public defenders and prosecutors. And I'm hearing now prosecutors want more money than public defenders. You know, you still have to understand that this is somebody's life and, you know, son, brother, mother, daughter, sister, that you have to defend. If not, then they're going to be incarcerated and nine times out of 10 are going to be unjustly incarcerated. So I do, like I said, I appreciate the fact that you have said, well, listen, we need, we also need to look at the indigenous defense side of the criminal justice because believe it or not, they also play a role in mass incarceration. And can you kind of tell us how they play a role in mass incarceration from what you found out? Yeah. So I, I've, I did an interview with um, a guy named Stephen Hanlon, who has worked as a call it impact litigation call him uh, many different things working with individuals and he had a quote on my show where he kind of pointed to that the structure of indigent defense and, and looking at indigent defense has failed in a, in a couple fold you can look at the way it's funded structured that way um, and that requires understanding the differences between contract counsel assigned counsel and public defenders in the state that you're in in north carolina there's a mix of the two it's not a fully staffed public defender state in a state where I'm in, in Colorado, it's all public defenders from the contract uh, or, or it's from the fully staffed offices and the alternate council. That's part of what makes it so complicated is that every state's different. And in some states, there's a million different reasons. But another one, Stephen talked about it, another guest on my show named Jeff Shear, who works at the National Association for Public Defense. There's been a shift in the culture of indigent defense probably over the past 20 years that you can look and see leaders and people coming up through the system are starting to look more at the system as a whole, less as individual cases. And this idea has really been an underlying issue if you go back a little bit further. Um, What was then at the time has been described to me that people who were coming up there and some of the guests I've had on the show, there was a lot of individual warrior mentality. This I am fighting, you know, some zealous advocates 
But when you are fighting against a system that is inherently rigged against you, where prosecutors and judges don't actually always follow the law um, as we think they do, where prosecutors are given leeway, where police and prosecutors have nearly unlimited immunity from civil action, from an oftentimes criminal action. When you have all of these things, it is not enough to merely fight in the individual case. And the other thing that contributed to that is what I would consider the adversary, police and prosecutors, highly organized, highly intentioned with what they do and how they message. They fight for each other, whether it's, you know, a law happening in New York, you'll see unions and associations from around the country go to support that association. They're highly engaged in the media and they know how to use the media. And all of those things public defenders weren't doing because they were stuck in this warrior mentality, because they were suffering from bad systemic issues, from funding and the structure itself. So all three of them play a role together to make it so that, as Stephen Hanlon said, that his generation of attorneys will go down as being a loyal foot soldier in the executive's war on crime. Um, I believe he was he might have been quoting a Supreme Court case in that uh, in that quote, but that was how he viewed it. And I, and I tend to agree that it's when you look at the whole system, um, it starts with bad structures, bad funding that creates too many caseloads, too much turnover, not enough experience, incentives not to do much. That forces you to pick a mentality where you can only win what you can win, and that's the case right in front of you. And then when you do that, you can't defeat your adversary who are highly organized, highly motivated, and highly literate in using the media to, to meet their ends. How do you think that public defenders can get, like, how can they make that better? How can they get around that to make it better for people who have to have no other choice to have a public defender. I mean, because let's be honest, like private attorneys are very expensive. <laughs> so we have to make sure that somehow, some way that our people are being protected and that they're being represented. Now, I know in California, they have their preparatory defense, which is a full team. And I think Texas is also forming some of the, well, they're doing a holistic public defender's office. Yes. And that's um, the, that's the word is holistic in a lot holistic. of places. Okay. So what you think is that, is that the answer? I think it is the correct direction. But the first thing, the reason why I believe, and this is, again, my opinion, other people might disagree, but I believe one of the reasons that police and prosecutors are first and foremost so successful is they are in the media. They People know about it. They, they The narratives are there, and they understand that you get policy done on niche topics. And I consider indigent defense a niche topic. You get victories in criminal justice topics by being in the media and getting people to care about them. That is step number one. And prosecutors and police have a decades-long advantage. And I think also the natural cultural proclivity in America towards punishment, towards retribution, that it's also on their side. I don't know what to do about that. But they lean into that by being in the media. So I think there's tons of ways you can restructure offices. For those that don't know, holistic defense kind of works with this idea that you have for a long time the only person who might interact with a public defender or with a with a with a client is the public defender themselves. You likely you wouldn't have an office with social workers, maybe you did a number of investigators and different sorts of things. There's peer navigators with Anthony Graves in Houston, Texas, who people who are in who have been in the system, he has great stuff there. The Bronx defenders are really the the proge proge progenitor, that's the word, of this model. 
And they do great stuff. I encourage people to go look them up. But that requires funding. And it works in big locations, right? So um, the peer navigators happening in Houston and in, in Harris County. Brooklyn has a, a good amount of money they can reach into. Public defenders that I've talked to in rural Georgia, public defenders that I've talked to in North Dakota, South Dakota, around the country, they don't have the ability to access those resources. So in order to get those resources, you have got to figure out how to get into the media, how to be, become a champion in every single opportunity. Every case presents an opportunity to present a systemic problem. Every case presents an opportunity for an individual client to be the face, to be another person that shows you, hey, you want to fix this criminal legal system because that could be you. That could be your brother, your sister, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle. And that's what police and prosecutors do with an individual victim of a crime. Oh, look at this. Look at how similar it is to your brother, your sister, your mother. That's why we need this policy. And it works. You have to flip that on its head. Otherwise, if you don't have the funding, holistic models can be brought to some places. Some incremental change to improve representation can happen. But I, I don't think you can get it if you're not figuring out how to leverage the media and friendly media to get these stories into the masses, into the, the conscience of the, of the voter. So this is my experience, and this, this might be an idea for some people to take and even for us here, because I know in North Carolina, a lot of the rural counties don't have public defenders offices at all. And I know that we have worked with Vera um, in Wilson County to help kind of depopulate that jail because they had contracted lawyers and the contracted lawyers mm. were not coming to see the, the indigenous clients. So they were just piling up and, you know, in there for like little amounts of bail. So we were able to work with both of them to depopulate that jail. But um, I was advocating for a guy who had the exact same charge as my husband, who was going through the exact same thing where he was just being railroaded because the DA knew him out of that county and at one time used to be his lawyer. And so he was just like dead set that he did this one crime that was, it was a horrendous crime, don't get me wrong. Um, but he was just dead set that him and this other guy did it. And so I worked with the uh, Capitol defender who was like, he's, he didn't do this. Like, he'd done some things, but this I know for a fact he did not do. So not only did he, you know, advocate, but we came in and what we did was we did a press conference and we did a press conference with his family. And so we were able to just let them express how who he was as a person, like humanize him. The defendant as a person. And so um, he went to trial for, it was supposed to be capital degree, capital uh, murder, first degree, and he went to trial. And so he was found not guilty. The prosecutors felt like by us coming in and covering the story and doing the press conference that that tainted the jury. And so they wanted to move it to a different county. And so they were going to go for second degree murder. Well, I kept advocating and kept, you know, just talking about it and having it in the media and so after that, they, like a few days before his trial, I mean, he did take a plea deal, but it was for 14 years for a second degree murder. And I think he had like felony, uh, fire, uh, felon, firearm by felon. And so that would have been like an extra 20 years. So he ended up getting 14 other than otherwise he would have got life plus 20. And so if we wouldn't have been in the media as well and had that press conference and showing that it was a racial bias that this um, district attorney was just focused on him, it might have been a little bit harder for his attorney to get the deal that he got or even, you know, have him not 
be found guilty on first degree capital murder. So maybe just having partnering with other outside organizations that kind of exactly. do emancipate do to help the 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 public defender be a more advocate and and have it in the media and get them in the media. Like, well, I know that they had a gag order, so they couldn't talk. So we were able to have it in the media for them because you know sometimes the public the prosecutor want a gag order so nobody can talk. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. so having us there to still be able to uplift him and show that he was a human and that they were wrongly mistaken and this wasn't the right person saved his life. Yeah. And there's, there's levels to the media engagement, right? There's no one size fits all. There is every case carries with it differently. But I think a lot of public defenders have, especially the ones I talk to, they struggle to wrap their heads around thinking past the individual case. Cause I always talk to public defenders and every one I have on the show Typically, it'll be, hey, you know, we have to be careful about this case or that case. And I always tell them, it's like, hey, I don't got to touch any individual case. We don't got to go into details. But there is always an opportunity to show how a statute is producing certain outcomes, how a policy is producing certain outcomes. And that's also where we talked to the second thing about media is like you said, 100 percent correct. Public offenders don't have to be on an island. Um, They can figure out who in the community will help them. Um, Some of the most successful, I think, probably the best example of starting a holistic public defender office from nowhere is actually in Lawrence, Kansas, with the Holistic Defender Services, started by a group of of people led by Sam, Allison, Natali. And they went in. Kansas doesn't have public defender offices at the misdemeanor level, only at the felony level. They go in. They use community organization, the grassroots organizers who are there. They get into the community. They start talking with different stakeholders in that community, and they are able to get the funding from the county to get a holistic representation model in the county. It can happen, um, but it requires public defenders to move away from that individual warrior mentality to we are one fighter in a big army that needs to use and leverage the tools that other ones has available that we might not have. Because you're 100% right. There's sometimes where public defenders can't and shouldn't talk about a case. No questions. But how can we keep talking about the narrative? How can we keep talking about things so that it doesn't die on the vine? It's all about shifting the narrative. And I think that that's really important. Um, So like one of the statues, I know you said that you did an interview with one of the Citizen Project attorneys, I think, that you just did. And so I know that she was speaking on felony felony murder. Yes, with Nazgul Ganoush at the yes. at the sentencing project. Yes. And so felony murder is a big one that I don't think a lot of people know. Multiple people can be charged up under that. And so you are mad. You basically are mass incarcerating people because you can charge three or four people with felony murder if you supposedly said that they coerced or were at the scene. And so can you kind of go into or just Kind of give us a snippet of what that conversation was about and how, yeah. you know, how we can change felony murder because my husband was charged under felony murder and was not even culpable. And so, yeah, the crazy part was he got more time than the actual shooters. So, yeah. And I'll I'll take it. I'll take a step back and start more broadly with extreme sentences because um, I've done another episode with the same guest you talked about, Nazgul Ganoush and Alexandra Bailey from the Sentencing Project. Extreme sentences, no matter what a prosecutor, no matter what a cop, no matter what and anybody who is pro-carceral tells you, extreme sentences exist for one reason, and that is to coerce plea deals. That is why they exist. That is what they are primarily used for. And everybody should hate this. 
for a number of reasons. The the big one being, as a guest on my show, Carissa Byrne Hessek, she's a professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, pointed out there comes a certain point in time where the sentence you are potentially facing if you go to trial, even if it is really, really minor that you can get convicted, the sentence is so great that it would actually be illogical to go to trial, even if you're innocent, even if they have a terrible case. An example of this, if you're facing a 50-year sentence, which can often be the case in a life without parole for a lot of people for felony murder, if you're facing that 50-year sentence, but they only have a 10% chance of convicting you, you are expected to get five years if you take that. So if the prosecutor offers you any less than five years, it is irrational to not take the plea deal, even though there's only 10. That's, that is why it's so dangerous to have a system which shuts lengthy prison sentences because it stops people from going to trial. It stops the jury from having a say in the legal system. It stops everybody from doing getting their constitutional rights to trial, to counsel, to all these things. Go out the window. Now, felony murder specifically fits exactly into that category. And the way that it is supposed to work, this is their what it says it's supposed to happen, is that because there is a harsh sentence, people will be less incentivized to contribute or assist in or abet a, a crime. And that if somebody involved in a crime, a felony, is, you know, kills someone in the process of that felony, no matter how remote that killing might be, that those individuals, everybody involved, can be charged as if they all agreed to the murder themselves and even pulled the trigger in some cases. It's absolutely crazy. And some of the, the, the reasons why that falls apart, as Nazgul pointed out on the episode, there's actually no evidence pointing to the fact that felony murder has in any way contributed to a deterrence effect, that it stops anybody from committing a crime. There's been several really decades-long studies about this that she mentions on the episode where the harsh sentences themselves don't show if anything, there might be a, a correlation that harsh sentences contribute to an increase in crime in certain jurisdictions. They also point out, here's how extreme it can get. There have been people who have been charged with felony murder who a cop kills an individual, a bystander, and the person who is engaged in the felony is charged with the killing of the, the bystander, not the police officer. That's how bonkers and wild felony murder can get. And it spits in the face of what our legal system, which is predicated upon an act and an intent to commit an act. We have a whole boatload of things that are lesser than first degree homicide for a reason, right? There, we all acknowledge that somebody could be driving a car negligently and kill someone. That's normally going to be a manslaughter charge. But if you're committing a felony, now that might be just treated like, and it, it goes against the idea that people have to have a certain intent to be punished for their actions. So that's felony murder, and it, and it, it, you know, all harsh sentences contribute to the public defender issue, because when you know a public defender might want in their heart of hearts to take a case to trial, but because they are dealing with an extremely harsh sentence, they make and their obligation is to try and point out that. Unfortunately, even though your case is very, very strong, the risk is so great. And we know that juries, prosecutors, and judges have so much in their back pocket that the risk is too great to go to trial. And that is the real, the real shitty part. Of, sorry, I don't know if I can swear. That's the yeah. real, yeah, yeah. That's the real shitty part of the thing like felony murder is because it makes the public defender often, not always, some public defenders, you're correct. Being a public defender doesn't make you a saint, doesn't make you great. Some suck. And a lot, especially in assigned counsel and contract, can be very harmful. But 
the existence of that harsh sentence can make a lot of people who are in that seat, who know, right, probability doesn't mean anything. They know they're innocent. It can put them at their rep and their representative at odds, and it can make it appear that the representative, the public defender, is working on behalf of the prosecution, when in reality, this public defender is given an impossible hand to deal with, right? Because they don't, they know that it is, it is based on just pure numbers, not a good call to go to trial, even when you can win in many, many cases, in many, many places. Yeah, and that's why so many people, and well, in my husband's case, like me going, like just going over his discovery was really weak. So honestly, that public defender could have won. And from what my husband said, that that attorney had never lost a murder case, and this was the first one. Um, and some of them have really weak cases. And, you know, he tried to fire him. He was told that, you know, he came and gave him, well, you know, we have good prosecute, well, good public defenders and we have bad ones. And if you fire me, then, you know, you're going to get a, a one that's going to be worse than me. And so, you know, he was just like, I'm not going to trial. Like, I'm just, I'm not going to trial because they're going to, the co-defense are going to testify against you. But, you know, just looking at the evidence, like, nobody was credible. So the evidence was weak. So he still should have at least tried to go to trial and let the jury be the, the, the decider of, you know, what should have been done. But it also, felony murder also contradicts the being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Because in North Carolina, it says you can't be convicted of a crime by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. but you can with felony murder. And so when you're looking, because you also have, and then the public defender also has to look at the evidence of the felony, because to get to felony murder, you have to be in the commission of committing a felony. Now, I've seen cases where there was no evidence, like they say of a robbery or a burglary, like no evidence that anything was taken, um, because I went to look like what are the, by law, what are, what are the actions that have to be taken to consider this as a robbery? And there has to be there has to be steps. And when those steps are not there, then, you know, that's not a felony. You know what I'm saying? And so the prosecutors, I mean, the public defenders also, and some of them, you know, like I said, in, in a lot of the, the back states, like the Southern states, a lot of them work together. You know what I'm saying? And there's some cases that, yeah, you can't beat because the odds of just the evidence is so strong, but then you have cases where the evidence is weak and they still don't want to go to trial because of whatever, you know, they might be friends with the, the public, I mean, the DA, I mean, because you got to think about it here, our public defender's office is in the courthouse. So the prosecutors are upstairs, the public defenders are right here. You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't feel like in my and, and I'll, 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 I'll jump in there because that is a, that is a part that is something that I think can be very difficult for people to understand. So like I work right now in a, in a public defender office that is co-located in the courthouse with the same prosecutor and defense attorney. And I, I can tell you firsthand experience, <laughs> these people do not like each other. It is an openly hostile relationship. But the important part for, I think, public defenders, policymakers to understand is that people, you know, have a right to feel wary when they see that kind of proximity. And people have a right to feel wary. The, the appearance of corruption is enough to destroy an institution. And I think this is a really big tension point for people in public defense and all kinds of institutions. I think it is incorrect to say automatically because they're in the same office that there's there. But because that, that, per, that perception exists, public defenders need to figure out how to deal with that. And this is where I think they often fail the community because they can, I, I know a lot of public defenders who get offended 
when communities critique them because they go like, oh, I'm doing all this for you and I don't feel welcomed and appreciated when in reality, they need to understand that that is a lived experience of a community they're serving. And instead of being, you know, alarmed by it or upset by it or turned off by it, they need to figure out how to address the underlying causes there, right? And when it appears that there is impropriety, when there is too good of a relationship between the prosecutor and the defense attorney, that can become a problem. And this speaks to one of the issues you've talked a lot about, contract attorney and assigned counsel. I wanted to, if I can for a moment, kind of explain really specifically in North Carolina, one of the main reasons with assigning contract counsel. So there are three delivery systems for public defenses. We've discussed assigned, contract, and your public defender. I'm going to focus on the assigned and contract. An assigned counsel system works as such. A judge, some somebody, some appointing figure in a county, in a municipality, in a state will have a list of attorneys. How this list is generated is a great question. It's different in a bunch of different places. Some it's a requirement to be a member of the bar. Some it's people who've signed up to do it. It's different in different places. These individuals are will be picked off of a list, sometimes in a random order, sometimes in a noted order. And then they will be paid either a flat rate fee per something or an hourly fee. A contract council typically will contract individually with a municipality, a county. Sometimes these are nonprofit offices like we see in the state of Oregon or they're individual contractors like we see in the state of Maine. North Carolina, I believe, has all three of these things, public defender offices, assigned council, and contract council. And the problem with contract council is that in the name of efficiency, in the name of saving money, governments have decided to not just wildly underpay them, but in some cases basically require them to pay out of pocket to do their job. So for decades in the state of Wisconsin, the hourly rate was around $40. Uh, the overhead rate, the cost to run an office was more than that. It was like $43 in the 1990s. It didn't change until, I believe, 2020, 2021. In the state of North Carolina, there was an incredible uh, study done to talk about what does an attorney actually bring home if they're paid a $55 hourly rate? Because, you know, I come from a family where not a lot of people make minimum wage, where, you know, when I tell somebody $55 is not a good hourly rate, they'll look at me and be like, what what, what are you talking about? Right. But this, yeah, and, and that makes sense. I don't blame you. But in the state of North Carolina, and this was an older study, might be a decade old by this, so the numbers are probably worse. But paying an attorney a $55 an hour rate, that effectively comes out to $2.71 an hour. It's nothing. Even at $85 an hour, it's $28.77, which is great. But what can you make doing other kinds of law, right? An attorney in North Carolina can easily charge $150, $250, $300 an hour. Mm -hmm. Are you going to take these cases? No, you're going to go take the ones you can make money. And when hourly rates are that low, This is coming directly out of investigative resources. This is coming directly out of social workers, out of paralegals, out of front office staff. So these assigned counsel are not given the money to do the job. Then, very often, if it's their only source of income, I know of places and I've talked to people around the country where they say, if I push too hard, this judge will stop appointing me to cases. This is the only way I can feed my family. So we have a natural conflict of interest. If I fight hard, I do my job, but I might not get another job. And now I can't feed myself. I can't keep, keep, keep a roof on my head. The other type of contract that messes up public defense is the flat rate fee. This is way worse than hourly fees. A flat rate fee 
means you get a grand for doing this case. No matter how much you, time you spend on it, no matter how many little you spend on it, you get this much for doing that case. In every one of those cases, a public defender is incentivized to work as little as possible. Because if I work one hour on a $1,000 case, I made $1,000 an hour. But if I work 10, now I made $100 an hour. And it keeps going down. An example where you can have both is in the state of Virginia, where Virginia pays an hourly rate. I believe it's $95 an hour. One of the highest in the, in the, in the, in the country. but they have a case cap. So in Virginia, it's about $150, $180 total that is capped for a misdemeanor, no matter how much you work on it. So after about an hour and a half of work, you stop getting paid. And this is the part of the public defender system that regular people don't understand about what is incentivizing their public defender to do all of these things. This is not to excuse the fact that public defenders are beholden to those incentives, but hopefully it gives people in the community something to then point to policy-wise that they can go and tell their legislatures, their policymakers to change. Because if they're able to do that, then we can get rid of the incentives. And I promise you, the vast majority of public defenders detest that these incentives exist. They want them gone. But by themselves, they can't change it. They need the community to understand it and to, to advocate to change these things. Because... That's how this whole thing gets screwed up. So sorry to go on a big, long tangent there, but I, I felt like it was really important to understand some of those financial incentives that exist for different kinds of people who work in indigent defense. Are you feeling unheard after a negative encounter with a law enforcement officer, sheriff, or correctional officer? Visit the Emancipate NC website to report your encounter. Any individual can use the Emancipate NC form to report a police encounter, upload video, photographs, or other evidence, and share their information with the U.S. Today's National Police Misconduct Database. Share it with your friends and family members and community. Our communities have the wisdom and the data we need to keep us safe from rude police. By crowdsourcing this information, we will be able to analyze departmental trends, mobilize campaigns for accountability, and file more effective litigation. Remember, we keep us safe. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Yeah, that's really important because, I mean, that's why a lot of, a lot of cases aren't handled in the way that they should, because they're really underfunded. And I think I don't think a lot of people understand that like you have a public defender who might have 200 cases and then you have, say you have seven or eight murder cases and we know murder cases take two years. And then, you know, that's why you can't have your expert witnesses because they just don't, they're not giving them enough money to fully defend the case. And so it does get a little tricky. And so it has to be a better way of figuring out just the legal system, because the legal system altogether just costs so much money, you know what I'm saying, to run it yep. and for the community. And so it just has to be a better way to make it more cost effective for everybody. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's really important because a lot of people can't, you know, afford a, a, like a paid attorney because most paid attorneys are $38,000, but that money is going to resources. And so I think that's where you need to where the community and the public defenders or the attorneys need to lean on the community and it all be a working body and not just individualized. Like we all work in our own silos. And I think that's a problem instead of 
working together to make sure everybody is taken care of the way they need to be taken care of. A hundred percent. That that silo problem is something that I didn't realize the extent of it until I got into the podcast. But public offenders, because they're so busy, have a really hard, hard time looking at what is happening in other states, other communities, other counties. There are some organizations at the national level that have like, you know, a training a month or a big conference during the year. But it's not enough to keep up with the speed that information passes in the prosecutor and cop side. They are engaged. Like I said, it, it requires people to recognize that this is an adversarial system by design and that the adversary is really good at what they do. And mm-hmm. if you fail, yeah, real good at it. If you fail to acknowledge that, you'll lose. Just off the bat, you will yeah. lose. And I think that is the hardest part is getting these individuals to collectively come together. It, it, it's it's a big part of my show is, is organization and getting people to recognize that it is challenging because we are disorganized. It is Very challenging good. because we are not all on the same page. And, you know, people in the criminal ju- – I see a lot of people infighting, and I'm like, look, we can we – can, don't let good be the enemy of the perfect very often. We, t- we really want the perfect solution. The cops and the prosecutors have been taking a good solution for a very long time, and they'll take a good solution this year and next year and next year and the year after that and the year after that because they know they'll get to perfect if they keep getting good solutions. They will get there. They're patient. And there's a lot that can be said about understanding the successes and strengths of your adversary, what they did right, what they did wrong, figuring out how to counter it. And that's very important. And I think that, you know, they we have to start having more relationships with the public defenders to help them get to where they need to be. Because, you know, like I said, the, the police and the public defenders are so organized together. And so that's what's taking over and what's causing mass incarceration and for us to change Um, the legal system or mass incarceration, we have to work together um, with the people that are defending our people. It's all the way I see it work. But I guess I was just like, so what other states, I know you've talked to different public defenders in different states. Have you, like, what is it like over here on the east side? And then what is going on, like, in the Midwest or the West? Yeah, so I'll go regionally. It's it's not quite as neat as you would like it to be regional. So in the West... Some of the people that I would say I think are doing the best, better job, and and everything is relative here. Nobody is where they need to be. I'll say that. Of all 50 states, there's exactly zero that that their chief public defender or every public defender in their state can come to me and say with a straight face, every person who is accused of a crime who is not able to afford counsel is given competent counsel, constitutionally sufficient counsel, and zealous defense in every case. Nobody in any state can tell me that with a straight face. States that I think are doing better. So my home state of Colorado and Alaska are two that probably have what I would consider the best or optimal public defender structure. They have a main public defender office, fully staffed, fully funded um, with support staff. They have a fully funded, fully staffed alternate council office that handles conflicts. They also work with contractors. But in this instance, you work with contract counsel as minimally as possible, which is good because there's so many incentives baked into contract counsels that it's just not, I don't think it's a great model. Then you have a wide array of things. Oregon is in the middle of an absolute meltdown because they're public defender. They're no longer to, able to get public defenders in cases. They have 600, 800 people waiting in jail without counsel. You have 
California that doesn't even have a statewide indigent defense system. So some places like San Francisco, L.A., places where there's money, doing pretty good. Um, Yolo County, places where they don't. There was a recent report that came out about Lake County, one of the poorest in California, failing across the board. Arizona doesn't have a full-time public defender office. New Mexico does. They suffer from money problems. Kansas only does felonies. I mean, it's so it's so one-off. What I would say generally, the West has some great examples and some really bad examples. The North, probably the standouts from the North, I would say Minnesota stands out because it's a fully unionized office across the state, which I think is a very good step towards organization and getting demands met. Wisconsin has a lawsuit against it right now. North Dakota and South Dakota don't have full-time public defender offices um, across the state. They are trying to figure out what the best way forward is. In the South, oh, oh, yep. Um, I would say probably in the Southern states, your best structured public defense system is going to be in Kentucky. They're just wildly underfunded, wildly underfunded, arguably some of the worst in the entire country. But as far as structure, leadership and like they probably are the best in the south tennessee has some unique problems alabama is sparse uh georgia has a lot of issues arkansas has several fees and other issues that are baked in louisiana is they by my estimation i think in 2020 were 1600 public defenders short of being fully staffed i consider texas the south but not the West. It's something, whatever you want to call it. It's not got a fully funded staff. Florida does have statewide public defense, but they have funding issues. South Carolina funding issues. North Carolina is divided. And then in the Northeast, Massachusetts has an interesting model. If contract system can work, it's Massachusetts, but very likely it can't. Sorry, Anthony, Ben and Deddy, if you're out there. still, I'm still not sold. Maine is having serious issues. They are a fully contract-based system. Some of the best places, though, for optimism probably come from New York. They had a major lawsuit that happened in 2012, 2014 that has now got them to the place where they are getting close to the level of funding they need. I have a lot of positive thoughts about Delaware. I just did an interview with their office. They have a lot of great things. Connecticut um, I th has new leadership. Maryland has new leadership. And then the last state in America that does not have a single dollar from the state going to indigent defense is Pennsylvania. Oh, really? Are you serious? Not a single it's dollar? weird. It's weird. So the state requires that every county have a fully staffed public defender office. So every county has a public defender office, but the counties pay for it. Mm. State provides no money to public defense. They are the last one in the country. It was them, Utah, and a couple others. Utah now is on board. Pennsylvania's it. Governor Shapiro up there, this has been talked about as changing. He's alluded to it, I think, in some of his talks. We'll see. I know I've talked with a lot of people out there. It's got to change because Philadelphia might be one of the best public defender offices in the country. Other than that, it's big hit or miss in Pennsylvania based off of what money is available. But how are they, if they, if the state is not giving them money, how are they funded? All counties. So they come from- And once you get down, money. yep, once you get down to the county level, you have all kinds kinds of problems. Most counties and most places are limited on how much tax revenue they can generate by the state. They can't in, uh, raise certain amounts of funds based off of where they are. If they're home, if they're home rule states, they have different kind of things that the counties can do. 
And what ends up happening is that the court system actually becomes a moneymaker in a lot of places. So I did an interview with a guy named Nick Barber in the state of Georgia. And he found there were several counties in Georgia that 20, I think it was more than 20% of their revenue was generated through court fines and fees. So if you're a county that is reliant to, you know, keep the water system running, keep the trash man on time, things that people will not tolerate to live in, if you are relying on the court system to bring in money and you're also obligated to pay for the very people who might stop you from collecting that money, who are you going to pay for? What are you going to make sure doesn't get funded? What are you going to prioritize? Yeah, you're you're not going to prioritize public defense. And again, it doesn't take somebody to be a monster to make that decision. I think this is another hard part about this is that recognizing that a lot of the reason why our legal system is failing is in part due to some monsters. Right. There are some bad people in our history who have done it. But a lot of times it is communities and localities and counties who have been left behind, not supported in a meaningful way. And they have to make impossibly tough decisions that then do lead to the incarceration of poor people. And I don't think there I think given the opportunity, some of them would gladly do something different. But, you know, following the 1980s and we stopped funding everything because of Ronald Reagan. That was the route they took. I don't like it. I don't support it. I think they made a bad choice. But I don't think they're necessarily monsters in the way that like Richard Nixon was. Exactly. So in those situations, I think that that's up to the community to start getting involved into what the county budget is doing. Because you also, you have to say so, like these are your taxpaying dollars. So that means you need to start going. And that's what we have started doing is attending the budget you know, when the city council and county commission have meetings attending the budget to let them know, hey, we want this money to go here. Like we were able to take money from the jail here that they were just holding on. I think it was like 900 million that they were holding on to hire correctional officers. But we know that correctional officers, they're just not hiring them because people don't want to be correctional officers. I don't know, but they still, you know, are lacking correctional officers. So we were able to allocate, advocate to allocate that money to teachers um, and bus drivers to give them a raise. So it's also up to the community to stay informed. And I think that we've got so used to thinking that these people at power, you know, can handle everything and that they're doing the right thing, but they're not. And so that's why it's important for you to understand what they're doing with your tax dollars, because then you can go advocate and go to city council or county, county commission meetings and advocate and say, hey, we noticed that you have $9 million over here and it's not, you know, it's not, we feel like it's not going in the right place. We want that allocated over here to the public defender's office or to have um, more after school resources for children or whatever. But it's still up to the community to understand that these are your taxpaying dollars and that these politicians have, that you have the power and that, that if you don't get involved and tell them what to do with your funds, they're going to do whatever because they feel like, okay, well, they trust us with it. So behind closed doors, they're doing it. They're giving it here, here, and there, and it's not going, it's not resourcing the community. And so it's their job to take our taxpaying dollars and resource our communities. And they have not been doing that. And that's why our communities are underfunded. Period. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a huge problem. And I don't know what the, what the fix is again. I, I don't have all the answers on this one, but getting people engaged in local politics, 
I think this is something that if you look at from like a traditional left, right, I think the political left at some point in time abandoned the idea of local politics and were very focused on federal politics, Supreme Court, federal elections, and the right didn't. And the right. political right has, and, and people, like an example of this is, you know, when, when individuals, when we see a angry parent from a parent-teacher conference meeting in Podunk, USA County population, 10,000 people, and it makes national news media, that is because of a highly, again, highly organized group of individuals who have a political agenda. They recognize that if I am loud enough, consistently enough, somebody will hear me, somebody will pick up my story, and it will become something that we're talking about at the national level. Why? Because they were persistent enough. They were loud enough. They, they, got, they got their message heard, but you have to be consistent. You have to be in there engaging because when it comes to local politics, the people who participate will be heard. They will, it'll happen. And if you don't participate, you will not be heard. And, be heard. I, and it, it will get bad really quick in a lot of these places and it has gotten bad in a lot of these places and i think that's why it's gotten bad because they they've got so used to us laxing and saying that well they're not gonna they're not gonna show up for a county you know county commission meeting or a city a city hall meeting they're not gonna show up for that and so that's the reason why we are where we are where our communities are so under resourced and you know people are going to prison and they don't have correct mental health because we have laxed on keeping the foot on them to make sure that they were doing what they're supposed to. That's why you see such gentrification in cities now, because they've used that money to gentrify all the cities. And so now people can't even, they have, people can't even afford to stay anywhere. So now people are homeless and probably committing crimes and, you know, going into the system. And so it, it puts a strain everywhere. So we have to get back to where, we are in tune with what's going on with the money that we are making that they are supposed to be taking and resourcing our communities with, and they're not. And so I just encourage all communities to start to get involved, like even if it's a small part of just looking up your county's budget or and could you because you can see exactly what they do with your dollars. Like the budget tells you exactly what what the sheriff's department is doing what the city has done, how much money is going to park and recreations, how much money are they spending on contractors to build parking decks and, and things of that nature. So I think that it's really important to get involved in politics in the low level, some type of politics in the low level, even if you're just getting into the budget and going to city council meetings and letting your voice be heard. Yeah, and when it comes to media literacy, I, when you were reading an article, a journal, any type of report on a policy that touches the criminal legal system, you should do two things. You should first look at the author. If the author is a cop or a prosecutor, understand that you are reading something that is very biased. Number two, look at who that article is quoting. If you read an article about a criminal justice policy and the only people quoted in it are police and prosecutors, or former police and former prosecutors, you are reading propaganda. You are not reading a detailed, honest. Now, that doesn't mean that those guys, they might be telling the exact truth, but it is from their angle. It is from their lens. It is from their standpoint to benefit their institutions of policing and prosecuting. Always, always find somebody in either a criminal justice reform organization talking about this, somebody in the defense bar, public defender, anybody 
who can give you the alternate perspective of what this policy is actually aiming to do and how it will be implemented and then make your decision from those two perspectives. But for way too many things, you, you see this all the time in reporting in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, they'll have a story about a case or about a policy and it'll just be cop, 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 prosecutor, 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 cop, cop, cop. And nobody, the author doesn't think to go, well, gee, am I actually getting a fair and balanced understanding of what's going on? Or am I getting propaganda? That's the latter. Yeah. And I, I think that that's why we are where we are today is because we've just let the propaganda brainwash us instead of saying, hey, there's another side to the story and, and actually going to check that, that side of that story to see and compare and contrast as they teach us in school, you know, what is the truth and what is, what is a lie? Because that's why we've got to the point where we had to be tough on crime, as they would say, and and lock people up and throw away the key, as Biden used to say. Because we just believed it so long that, you know, locking people away who have committed heinous crimes um, was just the right way to go instead of saying no, that we need restorative justice and we need, um, you know, correct holistic mental health and we need to make sure that everybody in everybody in the community has what they need and not certain people or certain sides of towns have what they need and others don't. Um, and so that's why we are in the position we are today, why America still incarcerates more people than any other country, any other country, period. So yep. and, and it is working now in an office with a highly effective um, public offender. I, I can tell you the difference it makes purely from an outcome perspective. So just recently talking with them, they routinely have more than half of the cases originally arrested or dropped by the prosecution. And right now, I, I don't know the exact timeline on this. I think it's over the past couple of months, maybe to the year. They have a 75% acquittal rate. If we are serious about, this is where I'll get on my Constitution should matter to everybody. But if we are serious about the promises and the protections of the Constitution, that you cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, we cannot claim to live in a country that values that, that cares about equality and fairness if the amount of money you have in your bank account can directly contribute to your ability to access the legal system. The legal system is a fundamental public good. It should be funded as such, and we should treat every single person who cannot afford counsel. And this is most Americans. People don't seem to understand how expensive attorneys are. If you think you can afford an attorney, I have good news for you. You're wrong. You're wrong. Most likely, you can't. In with all the things happening, most people cannot afford counsel. You are one mistaken identification, one bad interaction, one mistake away from being at the mercy of a judge, a jury, a prosecutor who doesn't care that you can't afford counsel very often. And this is why public defense and indigent defense is something that every American should care about, whether it's for restorative justice, for the, the reclamation of the sins of our past when it comes to racial injustice, whether it's for that, whether it's purely on the constitutional standing that you cannot guarantee people to have access to life, liberty, and property unabetted by the government unless they can defend themselves in court. You know, if you're a constitutional person, you don't have the right to bear arms. If a cop can shoot you or arrest you for owning a weapon and in court, you can't raise positive defense. 
you don't have a right to free speech if you can get arrested for protesting and you can't raise those grounds in court. All of these protections that people love so much are downstream of your ability to defend them in court. Whatever reason you come to, public defense and ensuring that you there is no economic barrier to accessing competent counsel that puts the burden of the government, then that's what it's supposed to be, the burden of the government in an adversarial way. If you ever want to get there, we've got to take care of this issue and it has to be at the forefront. And hopefully through shows like this and mine and everybody out there who is listening, that can be what happens. But it, it requires, like you said, so spot on. People got to care. People got to pay attention. People cannot listlessly be dragged along in the march towards further incarceration, further policing, and further prosecution. That is the key. I mean, we all, we got to do it together because the system has been organized, well organized for so long. And so it's going to take an army, maybe a Navy, to break it down and, and build it to where it is equal and it gives equality to everybody. And so I don't think people understand, like, yeah, you are one stop away from having an interaction, you know, and never know when you're going to have to be in court, period, whether it's a traffic ticket or whether, you know, you were drinking and driving, you had a few drinks and you decided to drive home. I mean, whatever it could be, you never know when you're going to be in that situation and you never know, you know, when you're going to be able to, if you're going to be able to afford attorneys. So it's really important that we help the whole community be one and be able to have defense that they are entitled to. Everybody's entitled to due process. And so it's it's really important that we make sure those people are getting that, especially if we're going to have a legal system the way we have. But I feel like we can build it to where it's equitable. We just have to keep fighting and all the things that, you know, your podcast is saying and then my podcast and the Citizens Project and the Innocence Project is doing is really important to show that we can have a better system and that we can all, you know, if we all come together, that it could be what it needs to be and what we think that the justice system is, but it's not. Absolutely agree. And, and, I'll, and I'll give the last one. You are innocent until proven guilty. But if you want to have a better chance of making sure the cops can't easily or the prosecutors can't easily prove your guilt, again, it's another right. You're going to want an attorney. You're going to want an attorney. Everything that is predicated upon your individual liberties is predicated upon your ability to defend it in a court of law. It's that simple. That's it. Or either you got to start learning the law yourself because you can't be per se. I mean, if, yeah, you can, you know, so if you got to go start learning it yourself and be pro se, then, you know, but we we, we got to get it together. It's got to be different. Yes, so we do. thank you so much, Hunter. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate you everything shout out your podcast and how people can follow you and get all of that good information before you get off of course of course so anybody can check out the work that we do uh that we do i the show is again public defenseless podcast it's you can find it anywhere that you get your uh podcast spotify apple stitcher everything like that you can also follow us on twitter and instagram uh twitter is pdp capital p capital d defenseless pod Instagram is Public Defenseless Podcast. I do my best to respond to you. I do my best to take feedback. I'm always looking for guests, potential episode topics, things that I'm missing. So please feel free to reach out to me there. Or you can always reach me at email at publicdefenseless at gmail.com. Thank you, Hunter. Have a good one. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you. You as well. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host. Sierra Cobb. 
take care.